Hi everyone, my name is Farhana Cannon and I'm the founder of iMedia Exposure and this is our Brand Boutique Elite Speaker Series and I have a very special guest on today. Um, we have Christine McKay, she is the founder and CEO of Venn Negotiation and I'm going to introduce her and bring her on now. How are you? What? You're muted. <laughs> Good morning. How are you? How are you? I'm doing great. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So Christine's amazing and she has a really um, in-depth background that has so much experience and she's created a series of different courses um, to help entrepreneurs, small businesses, mid-sized businesses really learn the tools and skills to be able to negotiate any situation. And right now, um, you know, going into COVID and all of these different things, um, she's created a program called Renegotiate That. So we'll talk a little bit about that um, throughout the, the series today. And she'll give us some really amazing tips on how you can um, effectively negotiate contracts, um, renegotiate different areas in your personal and business life. But let's get started. Christine, tell us a little bit about you and how you got started in this. So I have an, an unusual story, I suppose. Um, well, not I suppose, I do have an unusual story. So I was an unwed teen mom and homeless for a period of time. I had three kids by the time I was 22 um, and was on and off welfare for over eight years and decided I wanted a different life for myself. And so I made one and I ultimately, I went back to college and got an associate's degree at Berkshire Community College. And then I was able to get a full scholarship to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And when I graduated um, as the first full-time um, student who was also a single mom, I apologize, I live in downtown Los Angeles and the sirens are going. Um, but as, as once I graduated, I took a position with a, a company called Bell Atlantic, and now that's Verizon. And I started doing international mergers and acquisitions. And I like to joke and say that I helped make the Euro possible because at the time the Euro did not exist and the uh, European Union was working to create a common currency and so the uh, governments were selling their state owned assets and starting to privatize them in order to be able to fund uh, entrance into the common currency, now the Euro. And I was leading mergers and acquisitions activities for Bell Atlantic in Eastern and Western Europe and negotiating with ministers of finance and telecommunications and working with investment bankers and all of their advisors and so that was really kind of where i started where i got where i really kind of defined negotiation as as a, a function that was kind of specific and i really i loved it and so i've just always been able to find ways to make sure that negotiation is part of everything that i do and every every project and and in all my work so i love it so why did you start then negotiation? 
So I had worked for many years at Deloitte Consulting and I had worked with, I've worked with almost half of, or negotiated with almost half of the Fortune 500. And, but I'm always, but I come from a very small rural town in North Central Montana and my parents are small business owners and I have an affinity toward small businesses. And I noticed that a lot of small businesses enter into agreements and there's a disparity in terms of who has kind of power in that in the relationship. And so I'm very passionate about helping small businesses level the playing fields so that that disparity is reduced and they're able to get better deals and both from a negotiating with new uh, new suppliers uh, and new vendors or new customers, but also renegotiating and kind of reassessing relationships because a lot of small businesses feel or believe that, well, I signed a contract, so I'm stuck with the contract. And that's actually not true. And so I really love helping them figure out how to be in business more successfully for a longer period of time through their contracts and through negotiating their relationships. Awesome. So you have created, um, you know, a quiz and all of the structure about different negotiation styles. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how, what is a negotiation style and what does that matter and how does that benefit um, somebody that owns a business? Sure. So there are a number of different negotiation styles. I've studied everything from DISC to Myers-Briggs to bank to TKI to you name it. I've studied so many of these tests. And I've also studied because after I went to um, after I went to Rensselaer and worked in international M&A, mergers and acquisitions, I then had the opportunity to attend Harvard University where I earned my MBA. And so I also have the benefit and the honor of having studied with some of the preeminent leaders in the field of negotiation um, through Harvard Business School. And so a lot of this, the analysis on negotiation style and, and stuff comes from them as well, as well as other schools like Wharton, Stanford, um, Cornell, et cetera. Um, so I've kind of broken, so I do have a quiz on my website and I have broken um, negotiation styles down to kind of into two kind of core areas. So the first part of it is I call, I describe people as either tradition or modern, and that's really based on kind of how they, their communication style. So uh, somebody who's traditional, I, I liken that to somebody who does business kind of in an old fashioned way, either very heavily focused on relationship and handshakes and kind of uh, more structured, more process oriented um, in their in their style of communicating. And so they they like meetings, they like that interaction, the connection, um, and they like to have things kind of structured and planned out in a process. And then modern people who have more of a modern style are frankly quite the opposite of that. They tend to do things kind of more by feel and on gut based on either experiences or deep knowledge in an area. They don't like a lot of meetings. They like very short communications, things that are very to the point that they're probably more likely to use text um, than email. 
whereas more the traditional is more likely to use an email. Um, and then the and then the other part of it is really kind of the core of the negotiation style, which I define them as being a champion, a maverick, a benefactor, or an ambassador. And a champion is a champion for him or herself. Uh, so they are all about winning. They like to win and they will like like to win at all costs. Even sometimes if that means it's not in their best interest to agree to something, they will still do it if they think that it's going to allow them to kind of conquer their opponent. That's how a champion kind of sees things. Um, they see the other side of the table or their counterpart as an opponent that to be defeated. And there's there are times when that's a very appropriate style, when there's no need to have a long-term relationship and you're really working to get a short-term gain, that's a can be a very effective style. Um, the next style is a maverick. And the majority of Americans are mavericks, over 50% of them. And mavericks negotiate based on their own self-interest which is slightly different than a champion because the champion will win at all costs that over the over their opponent a maverick they don't really care if their counterparts win or lose they're not they're just they just don't concern themselves about it so they want to they want to get what they want and get what they need they just don't care if you get what you want or need in the in the process and so um they and that that is also a style that's good for short-term negotiating for short-term gains um the third style is a benefactor which the benefactor is the exact opposite of the champion they will take deals and do deals because of the relationship and that is the thing that they are 100 percent concerned about and the benefactor will sometimes make a deal that's not in his or her best interest simply because they feel that they have to in order to preserve the relationship so that style the benefactor style can sometimes will will we'll oftentimes walk away from deals feeling that they've been taken advantage of or that they didn't get the best deal because they may be negotiating with a champion who just kind of ran them over. And then the fourth style is an ambassador. And ambassadors uh, really are about problem solving. I have an affinity toward the style because I'm an ambassador in my style. Um, and an, an ambassador really focuses on trying to create a bigger pie, making sure both sides win and not, I won't say win-win because I, 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 my professors and I at Harvard had all these discussions about the notion of win-win, uh, but the, but we like to create a bigger pie so that, and we like to be very creative in finding solutions um, that were not not are not necessarily obvious. I like to call them unspoken incentives. We're always looking for what those unspoken incentives are so that we can do more. The challenge for us, though, is that sometimes some ambassadors will uh, make kind of mountains out of molehills in order to create a more interesting negotiation when it could be just something that's shortened to the point. And then it, and then sometimes ambassadors just take too long uh, because they're always just trying to find just solutions that don't 
need to be solved and um, and whatnot. So, so that's kind of, those are the four styles. And all of us are all four of those styles. We all use all of those styles at different points in time. And so the trick with the reason why it's so important is because once you understand the different styles and you learn how to use them when they're most appropriate, then style becomes a strategic tool to use in the negotiation to become more effective versus just something you default to and fall back on because it's what you how you've always negotiated and how you're comfortable. Got it. So if you want, if anybody wants to find out what their negotiation style is, um, the link is right there and you can take the quiz and find out what your style is. And like Christine said, you know, that could be your default negotiation style. It may not be the way you are in every negotiation because I think some part of it has to do with depending upon the type of deal, what you're you know, working out, as well as I would assume the other person and what their style is. So tell us a little bit about how um, you know, their style affects the situation. Absolutely. And because it, it I mean, it's all two way street, right? Or, or it's a multi level street if you are doing a multi party negotiation. So everybody's style matters, right? And, and no style is necessarily, um, no style is right or wrong. They are effective or not effective in different situations. But for example, like I mentioned earlier, if you're a benefactor, and you are negotiating with a champion who is out to conquer you, the benefactor is probably best suited to find somebody else to help negotiate that deal because you will get taken advantage of. It's just the way it is. And it's just that that's just the style. Um, there's been a lot of research. So there's a professor out of Cornell who did some research. And what they found is that when we have um, strong styles, when we have a person that has a very strong personality and uh, they're very expressive about their style, people tend to kind of adopt, move to that style. So if you have a group of champions in a negotiation and one of the, any of the other styles, the other style will rise, will adapt to being more of a champion. Um, as a tendency. And so that that strength of style becomes very, very important in order to be successful in the negotiation. When I'm negotiating with a champion, it depends on what I'm negotiating negotiating for is what dri will drive how I adapt or not, whether I dig my heels in and fall to my ambassador style or whether I become more of a benefactor um, it, to accommodate a benefactor or whether I adopt a champion style. I tell the story of when I bought two cars for the price of one plus $5,000. And that in that situation, I took very much of a maverick position. I was very focused on my self-interest in that negotiation because that was the style of the, the dealership as well. And so I, I matched that style instead of relying on my, my traditional style as an example. So it is important to know that other style and figure out how to adapt, not and not how how to adapt to it, but also when to adapt to it, to so that you're using that to your advantage strategically. So how can you tell? Because so there's different ways of negotiation, and all of these different styles. You have your default style, 
but how do you decipher what the style is of the other person you know maybe you have only had like a brief encounter with them um you're trying to work out a deal and you don't necessarily know their actual style like you know how do you decipher that and kind of create um, a, a game plan that's going to work and be effective so there are a bunch of different ways of doing it but the i mean well i mean there's really one way and that is to kind of to ask a lot of questions and to listen to the answers be observant about how um, somebody is communicating to you. So for example, if somebody um, is shoots me a text, I know almost immediately that that person tends to be more modern, though I'm a texter and I'm a traditional negotiator. So you, it's, you can't just look to one thing. So it's also about how they communicate in an email. Are they, do they tend to do one liners? Do they put things in a bullet form? Um, I had a, I met somebody recently who I was, we were talking about what we did. And now when I told him that I was a, that I was a negotiation strategist, he's like, Oh, I love to negotiate. And he started telling me this story about how he had gone out with um, some of his friends to, for pizza and actually negotiated the pizza to reduce the price of the pizza. And I was like, you're a champion. <laughs> so it's kind of the looking to say, how does this person, if a person talks a lot about relationships and um, then then they're more likely going to be a benefactor because that is the that is the number one driving thing for them in their in their relationships. It's easy to kind of assume, especially when you're in the United States, this is not applicable across the globe. However, every culture has kind of different emphasis on style. And I haven't actually um, there. And my, my experience internationally, because I've worked and negotiated in 53 countries, is it varies. It's, it's, it's very different in different cultures. So I'm, when I'm talking about um, percentages of style, it's really about the United States. So in the United States, you could almost you have a 50-50 shot of assuming somebody's a maverick. <laughs> so because most Americans are mavericks. And so most Americans negotiate based on their self-interest. Um, and you can see that when they make when they tend to talk and not listen to what you're saying. They don't ask you questions about what you need and what you want. And and then when they do ask you questions, they're already thinking themselves about what they're going to do and what they're going to say and how they're going to get what they want. So that's a really huge clue that somebody is a maverick because they're so focused on their own interests that they're just not taking time to pay attention to yours. An ambassador, you know that you're talking to an ambassador because they ask you a lot of questions and then they ask you questions about the questions that they already asked you. And so they tend to, because they're looking for, they're looking for ways to make the pie bigger, they tend to do a lot of open-ended questions and then you'll, you'll we'll ask open-ended questions, you'll answer, then we'll ask more open-ended questions based on the answers that you've given. And so um, so that's a big clue of um, somebody who's an ambassador. If you've got somebody who's trying to control 100% of the uh, all aspects of the negotiation, timing, like if you, if you set, set, send a, a meeting invite, a champion is likely to decline a meeting and say, that time doesn't work for me. They might not necessarily give you alternative times. They just may say that's not going to work because what they're trying to do is say, 
okay, uh, I'm going to push you and I'm going to see how far I can push you before I push you too far. And so they're really trying to take and maintain that control over all aspects. So they'll say that doesn't work. They'll decline the meeting and then you'll go back and most people will go back and say, well, here are some times that work for me. And they'll say, well, none of those work for me. Well, what works for you? Well, just send me some more times. And, and that's very much kind of how a, a champion kind of operates. Um, but so that, so, and then the benefactor, the benefactor is actually almost as challenging to, I find to work, to negotiate with as the champion, because the champion is very challenging to negotiate with. And the benefactor is also challenging because you never know if you're getting kind of a straight answer because the benefactor tends to be very conflict avoidant. So if you are, you can identify a benefactor by the very fact that they look to avoid dealing with, with challenging topics and challenging issues. And so those are, those are some of the things to kind of look for to identify who's who and the, and what their, their default style is. Yeah, so if you're watching right now, you can find out what your default negotiation style is. So whether you are a champion, a maverick, a ambassador, or a benefactor, um, if you go to the link right at the bottom there, you'll be able to figure out what your style is. And Christine's telling us how it's super important for us to know what our default style is, but that you can use different styles, even if you may have a default, depending upon, you know, the situation, um, the people that you're working with and their styles as well. Um, and she just gave us some really great tips on how we can um, decipher what the style is of that other person, because it definitely matters. You know, if you think about just any situation that you go into, you're signing a contract with a client or you're um, getting supplies um, from another client or you know, from basic things in your in your personal life as well, like you can look at it and see like, you know, everything's kind of a negotiation. Um, you know, one of my friends says, closed mouths don't get fed. And so- I like that. Yeah, um, so you can literally ask for anything and, you know, negotiate what you want and read the situation. So Christine's created a bunch of different um, digital courses to teach us to do that. And Christine's actually one of my clients. And so I've learned so much about, you know, my style and how I relate to other clients and kind of seeing where they land in that spectrum and, and making sure like, as like, I'm taking care of them to understand their style so that when we are like doing basic things on a weekly level, I can really figure out what communication style um, works for them. And so not even like when you're just negotiating something or a contract, I feel like it works with if you're trying to get a project done and like the roles in that too. So I wanna know more about like you've been to negotiated in 53 countries mm -hmm. and you know, there's so many different cultures and you know, your statistics are based on the US, but one, are the different negotiation styles applicable for other countries and how that may that be different? And like, what are some examples of somebody from another country that you've worked with that you've had to kind of tailor a style to because of like the culture? So, and the easy one is, is Asia, right? So the, 
the style. So first of all, one of the main differences about U.S. culture versus any other part of the world is our reliance on contracts to do business. So we have so I've negotiated so many deals where contracts are like 100 some odd pages long, 100 plus. I think 300 and some odd was my biggest. And so you don't find that very much in other countries. They tend to have, um, they don't rely on attorneys to kind of litigate their kind of their relationships as much as Americans do. And so that sets a different tone in the negotiation. Um, so some, some cultures are very, um, they tend to, they, they, at least in my experience, so it's more anecdotal. Um, I'm actually working with somebody in Switzerland. We're actually talking about pull, pulling together some stuff on, on styles related to different cultures because she is a specialist in dealing with uh, culture. And so anecdotally, there are some cultures that are just much harder to negotiate. They, they, uh, they seem to have a higher level of champions in their negotiation style than in other cultures. In Asia, and you have to be very careful, I, I was on a thing yesterday and somebody started talking about body language. And you have to be very careful in negotiating what to assume that as an American to for an American to assume that another culture's body language is the same as ours because that's not actually correct. There was research done by a guy named Paul Ekman. There's this great TV show called Lie to Me that the, his is based on his work and the, his work is really about uh, micro expressions and how the human being has eight basic micro expressions that are universal. Uh, so that he studied like indigenous tribes in very remote areas uh, and all over that. He just studied a bunch of different cultures all over the world. And so his work is really informative in terms of negotiating to figure out kind of whether somebody's surprised by somebody, something, whether they're happy, they're sad. Um, and so under, and I've looked, I looked to him, his work to, to kind of help, help with that. I started my negotiation experience when I was at Bell Atlantic. My first projects were all in Southeast Asia. So I worked in Indonesia, Hong Kong, um, Singapore, uh, uh, Malaysia. And so that was very informative because they have a very different style. They, first of all, they do a lot more team negotiation. The person who's the decision maker isn't necessarily the person doing all the talking, which is very different than the United States where the opposite. Um, people kind of think of you know where you sit where you sit in a room is actually important uh, in negotiation and in Asia there's a different kind of culture around how where you sit and kind of how you position Americans like to Americans think that the decision maker sits at the head of the table and that's actually not very common um, most of the time the decision maker sits at the center of the table so kind of on the long side of a of a conference room table and in in certain parts of asia you know the decision maker may sit, sit, be sitting at the very end of the table and so you really have to be depending on what culture you are negotiating with you just need to be 
uh, aware of different uh, the different of different styles and different kind of approaches that they have. So um, yesterday, somebody was saying to me, we were talking about um, uh, the US and the UK. And I've worked extensively in the United Kingdom and love it. I miss it there so much. Um, and so, she, and she's Dutch. And so she is saying that how Americans communicate. So we exaggerate our communication. So we say things like, that was amazing. That's the best thing ever. Nobody else does that in the entire world. <laughs> that is a, Nobody else is so extra. No, that is a very American thing. But and so in the in in the UK, they'll say that was a really good job and very helpful. Thank you. Right. And in and in you know other parts of the world, they'll say something else. So it's just like kind of learning some of that. When I teach when I teach international negotiations, my favorite book, it, and it's not like any book that most anyone will associate with this, but I use Stephen, um, uh, yeah, why, uh, oh God, now I, his name just like left my brain. I was just like, it, um, anyway, it's Stephen Ambrose, um, Ambrose, and it's, um, the book is called Undaunted Courage, and it is a, a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition across the United States. And Lewis and Clark had to negotiate with 25 or 24 um, Indian tribes. And my dad grew up on one of the reservations of one of those tribes. And so I used that book as a way, because some of those negotiations went very well um, for Lewis and Clark and some didn't go so well. So it's a very good book for kind of learning uh, culture. And so, so yeah. Yeah, so culture is totally in what you said earlier. Um, so like people in London, they're not going to be so like, oh, my God, that was so amazing. But you can even tell like in their humor, their humor is like very dry and flatline. We're like American humor is like all of this up yeah. and down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that totally makes sense that like different cultures and even people, I think, that have strong ties to like they might be American. But if they have like strong cultural influence in who they are some of that culture might kind of like be a part of that as well. Absolutely. And I think, and one of the things that I think that people outside the United States make the mistake of is they assume that because you're negotiating with an American, uh, you can negotiate the same in New York as you do in Los Angeles or Chicago or New Orleans. And the reality is, is, even within the United States, there are different cultures. Um, uh, Louisiana even actually has a completely separate legal system. They operate under Napoleonic law, which is very different than than all the, the, the other 49 states. So, you, so people who are not from the United States need to be careful not to assume that all Americans are the same because we're not. So how you live in Boston and my husband and I lived in Boston for quite a number of years. He's from Massachusetts. And I can tell you, there is no way that you could walk into a Los Angeles business on in Silicon Beach in Santa Monica and negotiate a deal exactly the same way as you would in in Boston or New York. It's like totally different. The vibe is different and the feel the things that are important are different. And so it, understanding that, it, the nuances can be very helpful. 
Yeah, for sure. And even I feel like you're going to present. So like when I go to speak at different country or cities around the the um, country, mm-hmm. I may have the same presentation, but I'll definitely have like a little bit of a different style, even like the way that I dress, like LA will be different than what I'm dressing like in DC to like Miami, um, just because you want to be relatable and um, make them feel comfortable and like you really get them. Because if you want to like have a connection and relate or do business with them, you kind of have to understand what their style is and what they're going to relate to. Absolutely. Exactly. So everyone, you know, not everyone, but there are a lot of people that are dealing with different areas of COVID affecting them, you know, economically, um, and they have expenses still. And some people aren't working. Some people are uncertain about their jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people have kind of had to reshift. You know, I have a lot of clients that want to do more things online. So we're right now like hustling to create their digital courses and um, their virtual events and kind of just reposition them because they can't do face-to-face business right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can negotiation help us in this time and what can we do to save on expenses or to kind of, you know, move away from like having some distress in this time? And I mean, the big thing is renegotiating. So now is the time to renegotiate key relationships. So I talk a lot when I, in my renegotiate that um, live cast, I talk a lot about um, the dot-com bubble bursting, right? Because it, from 2000 to October of 2002, the NASDAQ last, lost 82% of its value and only 44% of tech companies that existed in 2000 survived as of October of 2002. So it was a devastating um, impact on that industry. And so we're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of similarities in terms of kind of the whiplash that the the market had and, and oil prices plummeted, which is similar to the, you know, to 2000, 2009, 2000 or 2008, 2009. And so we, there's just a lot of similarities. And what I, what I've learned over my almost 30 years now, I can't believe I just said that, but of, of years of experience in negotiating is that most negotiation is actually not like I differentiated and I call it renegotiation where you have an existing relationship, but the terms that you enter under which you entered into that relationship, whether they are formal or informal have changed and, or need to change because the circumstances have changed. When we enter into agreements, we do it based on the information that we have at the time. So which that's historic. And then uh, what we believe will happen in the future, which is assumptions, right? So we have this historic aspect and then we have this assumption, this assumption based element. And when the assumptions uh, don't play out the way that we anticipated. And then the the conditions under which we entered into that agreement now are different and they need to, and they need to change. And so there are some differences because, and the biggest difference between negotiating and renegotiating is that history. The fact that we have that history of, we have that history of experiences with products and services. We have an experience now from a customer service perspective 
if it's a if you're buying something, then there's a payment history aspect. But the biggest one is there's personality history. So we now know the players and we have opinions about the players and emotions can run really high in renegotiating because the person asking for the renegotiation, right? Something is wrong with the, with the current situation that needs to be rectified in order for them to continue to be successful in their business. And if they start getting, and, and, and so that, that causes the emotion to start to run, run high. And that, I mean, I had a negotiation during the dot-com when the dot-com bubble burst and the, uh, it was a, a customer and he had been trying to renegotiate his contract with my company at the time. And my CEO wasn't talking to him. My CFO wasn't talking to him. My legal counsel wasn't talking. Nobody was talking to him. And he kept getting more and more and more agitated. And as, and, and up until the point where the CFO, who was my boss at the time, said, Christine, go fix this. And so I got a hold of the guy and he's like, I'm coming to Boston. And he was in California. He's like, I'm coming to Boston. And I'm like, oh crap, because he had started getting really aggressive in his communication. And I was actually concerned for my executive's physical safety. So I literally had to arrange to meet at a satellite office. And I had a security guard posted outside my door uh, where we were meeting because I was not sure how this was going to go. And because his emotions were running so high because his business was going to go under if he could not figure out how to exit the contract. And so we were able, to, I, I sat down and I listened to him and you know, I threw my executives under the bus in the conversation <laughs> um, and the contract was not a favorable contract to him. I remember leaving and I was, I said, uh, to somebody, I was like, anybody who signed this contract should never have signed it because it was very, the, it, my executive team were all champions. And, um, and so they, and that's how the contract was written. I was like, this is crazy. And so, but we were able to figure it out and he was able to buy out of the contract and, and they were able to continue in business. So what are some, you know, so in that situation, you're saying that they were all champions and it wasn't beneficial to him. You know, what are some ways for us to look at contracts or deals that we're going in? What are some tips um, so that we can protect ourselves or, you know, go into a contract where it is in our favor? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is knowing your style <laughs> because your style actually has such a huge pre uh, part to play in terms of how you ask, because how you ask is going to matter. So that's the first thing. The second thing is understand what your rationale is. What is the driver? And if I have another person call me and say, I want to negotiate because of COVID, I'm just, it's like, no, this is not sufficient. You cannot just say, well, coronavirus is destroying my business. And so there, that's it. I want to renegotiate. I'm like, no, that's not, that's not enough. How, so the rationale has to be, how is the situation impacting you specifically? What is driving? Not, it, that, that may be a, a factor, but was your business, have, was your business in having issues before? Was this going to be something? I actually had this conversation just yesterday with a client. Um, 
So she's a retailer and it's like, so ha what have you done, right? There, there's a, she, she was having issues before. So COVID is gonna you know, accelerate kind of the challenges that she was having before. And so she was gonna need to renegotiate. So we don't wanna just rely on, you know, just, it's just COVID. Um, and so, but you gotta know your numbers. If you don't know your numbers and you can't quantify and understand exactly how something is impacting, then you're gonna lose the ability to really uh, understand what your options are. Because in a renegotiation situation, an ambassador is probably the best best solution to, or best person to put in front of a renegotiation because renegotiation is all about finding unspoken incentives. It's like, there's, there's for, unless the deal that you have in place is not working for your counterpart too, you're asking for something and you, your counterpart is likely going to feel like they're going to lose. Um, Harvard just released a, a blog article yesterday, actually, on their Harvard program on negotiation, where they talked about renegotiation. But I was actually really surprised because the way that they talked about it um, was kind of negative that there was this only that it was only going to be a negative outcome and lead to litigation and all that. And I don't buy that. And I, that's not my experience. And I've renegotiated hundreds and hundreds of agreements. But um, so but you've got to know your numbers. If you don't know your numbers, you can't you lose the ability to figure out if I pull here then where does this go? Right. And that becomes super important in order to be creative, to figure out how to take a negative situation and turn it into something that is either less negative or maybe even positive, depending on what the objectives are of your counterpart. So you got to know your style. You have to know your rationale. You have to know your numbers and then you have to figure out how what you're what you need is going to be impacted on your counter, what the impact is on your counterpart. So I'm renegotiating a, a commercial lease right now. And the thing is, is that, you know, uh, landlords uh, have obligations to their banks. They have, you know, they have reporting obligations. They have uh, criteria that just, they just have different things that they have to adhere to. And one of the things that's super important for a landlord is predictable long-term revenue, right? Because, because it's a long, it's a, the, a loan um, of, of multiple millions of dollars is uh it's you know the, the, you've got collateral to it but it's still you know there's you've got to be able to manage that risk and so they that's one of the things they need so can you add can you add to the back end of the term kind of all the you know what what you know kind of thinking about it from that perspective and what does that landlord need in order to be able to be successful I talked to a landlord yesterday, they have 143 tenants and every one of them have called them to renegotiate. And, and he said, he said, he said to me, he's like, well, has your client, you know, done SBA? Have, have they, you know, cause they have an SBA loan. Have they done, have they deferred that? Have they applied for PP, you know, the PPP program? I mean, what are the things that they're doing? And you need to be able to articulate those. What are those things that you're doing? Because you can't just say to your landlord, you know, uh, well, no, I haven't talked to anybody. And they're gonna be like, well, you know, cause they, they may be a small business too. And so they're impacted as well. 
um, you can pick up the phone and you can call your phone companies and get better deals on, on that. And the, the thing is, is that you've got to ask. So that's the fifth, fifth thing. So you know your style, you figure out your rationale, you figure out what you, you know, what your numbers are, you figure out how, how what you need is going to impact your counterpart. And then you have to ask. And this is like a benefactor is not going to ask. They're just going to, they're not only is the benefactor not likely to ask, they're likely to live with the situation and go out of business faster because they're, they don't, they're afraid of the conflict. And so they'll just agonize in their own head and, and kind of try to figure it out on the back end, but they've got to ask. And that asking part is the hard part because we are worried that we're going to be judged because we're asking to renegotiate the situ whatever the situation, whether it's coronavirus related or or not. And you know, we may never and hopefully we'll never be in a COVID situation ever again, but there will be another massively, you know, something that massively impacts our ability to do business in the future, because there is about every 10 to 12 years, it seems like, at least in my lifetime. And then you can be renegotiating all the time. You should always be reevaluating your agreements to make sure that they work or not. So once, so once you ask, then it's really listen. You've got to, you've got to be paying very close attention to how do you make your counterpart successful in light of a renegotiation, so that you're both able to continue and thrive. Um, and I had again during the dot com bubble. I had a the first client I ever did this with. Um, I they had over a million dollar liability to a supplier, and we renegotiated their that that liability and reduced it by over seventy percent, and kept them in business. And that company was able to not just make it through that downturn, but they were able to stay in business for many, many years afterward and sold for hundreds of millions of dollars because they were able to renegotiate that relationship and kind of we created a way of making that a long term um, benefit to the supplier to do that. But it I mean, it took some effort to do it. But but so, yeah, so negotiating your style, know your negotiation style. Um, make sure you understand what your rationale is, know your numbers so that you can figure out what your options are and figure out how it's going to impact your counterpart. Ask and then listen and be flexible in terms of kind of what what can be done and what can't be done. So thank you so much. That's super interesting. And you can definitely take that in so many different areas of like business, your personal life. Um, so that you are in a situation that is beneficial to you and that is workable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's there's so many different components and there's like, you know, not all of us know how to decipher ourselves or what those styles mean or, you know, what's the how or how to even make it quantifiable. We might have like numbers and we might have, you know, the ask, but to really create this effective strategy, you know, I feel like, um, there needs to be some training around that to really master that. Um, and so earlier, Christine discussed um, London and how she enjoys that. So she is a English football fan. Yes, I am. No yeah. hard to know. <laughs> <laughs> and she's also an American football fan. 
I am. <laughs> Go so Dolphins. She, <laughs> so she's created this program called Negotiating in the Zen Zone. And in this program, she goes through all of these steps and provides um, tools for you to really effectively go into any negotiation, be able to like have contracts that really work, um, be able to deal with the different um negotiation styles and have the outcomes that you want to so really get what you want from those negotiations because you know sometimes we go into things and we're a bit blindsided or we don't have all of the information or maybe we just don't know how to react to another negotiation style in that like very minute but if you're you know equipped with all of the tools of understanding yourself and the styles um your counterpart in their styles, the numbers, the how, the ask, and how to quantify that. Imagine how like powerful that would be to like go into any situation and, and have like this toolkit. So she is um her negotiating in the Venn zone, you know, the, the football play here that we're doing. Um, she has her first session of that. It's going to be on Friday at a eleven um, Pacific time. And if you go to this link, it will take you to her website and you can check that out in RSVP um, for that course. There is a three series course that you're going to really learn how to effectively come out and be powerful when you go into any negotiation. Um, she also has another course that's called Renegotiate That, where she'll go into how to renegotiate things and especially now if you're dealing with anything going on with COVID you can utilize that course to figure out how to renegotiate things in your life and save money and say no to bankruptcy if that's what you may be facing. So I have a, a couple of um, fun questions. Okay. So my fun question, well I guess my one fun question is if you could be a superhero what would be your two superpowers? Oh, my two? I get two of them? Yes. Oh, boy. Uh, well, I I would actually want to be able to fly and go to the speed of light so that I could travel so much more because I haven't been to nearly as many places as I want to go. So <laughs> that would be one. Um, and I would be able to speak all languages. Wow, those are exactly my same two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, I, I mean, I am a stereotypical American. I speak a teeny, teeny, tiny bit of French, but I really wish that, because where I grew up, we didn't get, we didn't, we could take French for two years, but that was it. And so I didn't have a lot of exposure to foreign language. And, and so I don't speak a second language and I am just so envious of, of people who speak multiple languages. I just think it's such an amazing gift to be able to understand people where they're at. And that is just huge. So that those would be my two. I could be able to go anywhere at a snap, a teleportation maybe. So I could do it like that. And yeah. then I could be able to speak at, at all languages. Yeah, that, that's exactly my same. I kind of want to fly, even though that might take long, but I want to be able to fly like really quickly then. Because I like the concept of being like feeling that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it would be so amazing just to like go to any country and be able to communicate. Because yeah. 
a lot of people around the world do speak English. It's kind of the language of business, um, but it's, you know, super, it's super, um, if like I could speak when I go to the countries, cause there's, it's sometimes frustrating when I'm like, oh man, I just can't do this communication. Like, I don't know how to convey my message right now. And I feel bad cause it's, I'm in your country and I don't, yeah. I can't get across what I want. Yeah. So I have to Google Translate for that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what would you say is, you know, one of your kind of top pieces of advice for entrepreneurs getting into business? Um, and, you know, one kind of, uh, so one piece of advice and then another would be uh, a piece of inspiration. Okay. So I think, so I think the, the put your goals in concrete and your plans in sand. So that is, I think in order to be successful in as a small business owner or as a business owner, I, I actually, I think that's true in everything is to put a goal in concrete so that it is unmovable. It's unwavering and you can see it, you can focus on it, but know that the way that you think you're going to get there is very different. So, you know, when I was um, homeless after, just after I quit living in my car, I decided I was going to go to Harvard university. Right. So I went to the welfare office the first time and they said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go to Harvard. And they laughed at everybody. I told everybody that and everybody laughed at me universally. And it's like, that's what I was going to do. And it took me 10 years, but I never took my eye off that goal and it happened and I made that happen. And so, and it was a lot of work to get there, but the way that I got there was completely, there's no way that I could have envisioned the path I took to get there. So put your goals in concrete and your your plan in, plans in sand. So that, so that would be my big one. And then what was the other one you asked me? So your, that I guess is your, I mean, it's, it's kind of both. It was like, yeah, it was kind of inspirational and it was a tip for entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, so like the one was a tip for entrepreneurs and one was inspiration and you kind of combine them. Okay, you, tip, you can share it, but you got like two of them there. I, I think I think that um, I think the other the other big tip is make sure as an entrepreneur, you are not trying to do everything yourself because you will get nothing done well and you will be broke trying and depressed and frustrated and angry. So find people to fill in and to do like, I love working with Farhana and I have other people on my team and I, you know, outsource wherever I can and looking to, and I can't grow unless I'm doing that. And so making sure that you are not trying to control a hundred percent of every aspect of your business because some of it's not in your control and you just need to let go sometimes and let other people bring other people in to do certain things for you. Yeah. I mean, and that's super important too, because you can't be a hundred percent effective for your clients if you're trying to do a million things. And as an entrepreneur, I get it. Like you have to wear a lot of different hats, mm -hmm. But the areas that you need to have effective results in, 
you need to outsource them. And especially if they're not areas that you're a big fan of. Yeah. You know, like with my team right now, there's there's six of us on the team and it's it's such a relief to have people that are doing different things because I can't do all of the things all of the time. Right. And so I need to have like a team to do that. And, it, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're just starting off, you want to hire people that you like and are good at what they do. I think, you know, what I don't know if this is good advice or not, but what I found out is that I will only have clients and people that work with me that I actually enjoy. If I will go to lunch with you and enjoy myself, then I want you to be my client and I want you to be on my team because you could be really amazing, but if we don't have that dynamic, it's not as fun. And as an entrepreneur, you get to like create the life that you want. And so I really like, you know, bringing people on my team that I'm like, okay, I would go to lunch with you and it would be a good time. And clients that I would go, Christine and I were in Miami for hours hanging out Yep, <laughs> a, couple, a couple months ago when we could be around people. And we could be around people. Yeah, exactly. Right before we stopped being able to be around people. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank God we had that little Miami trip. <laughs> So if you're um, watching the end of this and you want to know what your negotiation style is or learn more about all of the programs Christine offers, you can go to this link right here on the page, um, and that's the quiz for the negotiation style. And then you can join us on Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for her negotiating in the Ben Zone. So thank you so much for being on. Um, I always love talking to you, and I always learn so much. And I hope everyone joins us on Friday for your first session of Negotiating uh, in the Ben Zone. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I love you. You're amazing. I love working with you. So I really appreciate it. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody.